politics is often a dirty word. There are few epithets more demeaning than to call a candidate running for office simply a standard politician. We're happy to welcome back Clark Forsyth, Senior Counsel at Americans United for Life, for a discussion on his book, Politics for the Greatest Good, The Case for Prudence in the Public Square, where we'll break down what's wrong with our politics and what we can do to make it better. I'm Tom Shakley, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law. I'm Tom Shakley, and I'm joined by Clark Forsyth, Senior Counsel at AUL. It's good to be back with you, Clark. Thanks, Tom. Good to be with you. So, Politics for the Greatest Good, The Case for Prudence in the Public Square. What is this book about? Well, it's about prudence in politics, which I mean as effectively achieving the moral good in politics. Uh, I mean, you know, there's a... Politics is, as you said, often a dirty word. Um, People are frustrated with politicians and elected officials who either are pursuing bad things or don't seem to get anything done. Uh, Whether it's in Congress, you talk about, you know, stalemate in Congress, or uh, even in the states or the courts or elected public officials. um, And uh, in politics for the greatest good, I looked in particular at the historical examples of William Wilberforce, the uh, member of parliament who pursued the eradication of the slave trade and slavery in Great Britain, the British Empire, and also at the uh, the example of uh, Abraham Lincoln, who for six to eight years before he ran for president pursued at least the limiting of slavery in the United States and raised it also as a moral issue in politics. Yeah, the the phrase even uh, invoking a moral consideration is, it seems so alien in our politics right now. I think people conflate any discussion of um, morals, uh, anything beyond sort of a, a an abstracted um, ethics as sort of... Um, too too heavy a burden uh, to, to bring into the politics, right? Because the political space has sort of been almost, it seems almost emptied out of, of values beyond um, voter preferences. And that's uh, not just a contemporary problem. Um, back in the 1850s, when Lincoln tried to raise the issue of slavery as a moral issue, uh, part of the pushback from Stephen Douglas and others was, Moral issues don't deserve to be in politics. Keep moral issues out of mm-hmm. politics. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's, and you're bringing not just moral issues broadly, but specifically the virtue of, of prudence to the fore in this and the virtue of the case for prudence in the public square, as the subtitle says. So this was your first book. Um, how was writing a book different uh, from writing articles, uh, law articles, briefs, other things? Well, that that was the question I asked myself before I started, and it uh, as it developed, it basically was a question of putting together ten or eleven or twelve essays, uh, 
and putting them into a book and um, editing it, them such that there would be a coherent theme and um, a, uh, a a consistency and a and a uh, uh, a smoothness to the uh, the writing from chapter to chapter. And as it happened, uh, before I thought about the book, I had written a series of essays, maybe six to eight, on the that had a common theme of prudence and politics. And um, I needed to come up with a couple more original chapters t- to finish out the book. And that's how it came together. So I looked at it as eight or ten serious essays uh, put together and edited uh, to, to have a coherence to them. And so we, we've touched upon how politics is, is often seen as a dirty word, um, sort of an epithet. Um, we've, we've talked about the, the, the need for moral considerations uh, for things beyond voter interest to be a guiding part of political conversation. So can there be a good politics? I mean, if prudence is a required part of that, what does a good politics look like? Well, actually, I think we we start with prudence before politics. Um, prudence, as you know, is a Christian virtue. It's exemplified in the in the in the Old Testament book of Proverbs, but it's also exemplified in four heroes of mine in s- Scripture, which uh, include Joseph and Nehemiah and Daniel and Esther. Uh, all four of those books uh, and. Uh, and the stories about them are about political prudence because all four of them were not within the Mosaic law and, and within the children of Israel. They were exiles working in pagan governments, and they had certain political authority in pagan governments. So the book of Proverbs and the story about those four um, exemplify the Christian virtue of prudence, but it's also a classical of virtue, uh, Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century um, also took it and and really pulled it apart and analyzed it and talked about prudence as an intellectual virtue, meaning when we address a problem, we take it apart, we uh, discern the problem, we deliberate about what to do about the problem, we make a decision, and then we execute the decision to solve the problem. So. Um, but 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 prudence always orients us toward the moral good. So if we want to take a prudential approach in politics, we uh, it, prudence says aim for the moral good and achieve it effectively. Yeah, this this that idea of, of prudencia as as both an ancient uh, you know thing dating back to the Greeks uh, and, and going through uh, through the past millennia as a guiding force. I think it's 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 often misunderstood. I mean, this brings us to. Uh, kind of a conversation about you know what prudence in the public square looks like, particularly. I think, you know, I think back to I think it was President uh, George H. W. Bush who who spoke from time to time to the effect that we have to do things you know prudently. It wouldn't be prudent, you know. He would say, uh, and and people have kind of taken that to mean whether that was coming from him or whether that was you know part of the zeitgeist. People have taken prudence, I think, often to mean uh, we have to do sort of the least we can. We have to rock the boat the least that we can get away with rocking it. We have to be very cautious. But prudence uh, doesn't mean that, right? No, it doesn't. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is because prudence was misunderstood. And I wanted to take a look at it historically, philosophically, 
in terms of public policy and kind of update the story about Prudence and bring in the historical examples of Wilberforce and Lincoln. But Prudence is often con- confused. Uh, when the, the term is used in practically all facets of our society, in finance, in military strategy, in economics, in, in law and policy, but when it's used in finance, it's, it, it's often used just to mean caution. You know, I'm a cautious investor. And prudence is much more than caution. Uh, in fact, um, if there is a moral good that can be accomplished, the most prudent thing is maybe, is maybe to race to achieve that quickly. Which can be a radical thing to do, right? It can be a thing that doesn't appear to be practical, certainly. It can be a thing that doesn't appear to be um, um, wise, especially, I mean, as, as you're bringing in the, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, um, from, a, from a purely practical perspective, advocating for abolition uh, in, the, in the way that was done uh, probably wasn't practical. If you were somebody advising from a, from a demographic standpoint, if you're saying, here's what voters are going to be interested in, um, you probably would have been advised against it. And yet it was because uh, the abolitionists were willing to listen to th- that prudential wisdom of, of recognizing uh, a moral evil, a moral injustice, and the need to eradicate it that allowed them to see beyond it and to see that full scope of prudence. Yes, and there was also the ongoing uh, division, frankly, and debate between the abolitionists on one hand and um, Lincoln and um, kind of the moderates who, were, who wouldn't assume the label of abolitionist because it was a political uh, dead end, um, but um, we're, we're concerned about abortion, I mean, uh, uh, slavery as a moral question, and they felt that slavery uh, was a stain on the United States and America as a witness to the world, among other uh, moral problems, and, um, but they but they felt that there needed to be some progress and movement forward, and at least let's limit it. At least let's reduce it to the original Confederate states. We can put it on a path to extinction. So this gets to, you know, let's, let's look at what is the difference between prudence in one's personal life uh, and in one's public life? I mean, is there a distinction there that we should consider? Um, or, you know... Uh, I would say there's no distinction except for the goals, meaning in your, in your personal life, you may pursue faith, you may pursue uh, practical uh, goals, you may pursue establishing a household, getting married, being effective in an occupation. You have certain goals and you should pursue them with prudence. When you step out into the public square, there are other goals, public goals, and you should also pursue them with prudence. So maybe the only distinction is, what are the goals you have? And each of us with prudence need to uh, evaluate the goals we have and whether they're the right ones and whether we're pursuing them with prudence. So you write about in this book the, you know, quote-unquote demise of prudence. Explain what that means. Well, I, I think we've touched on it a little bit. Um, in that it has been confused over the centuries. I mean, philosophically, it was undermined by Immanuel Kant in the 18th century. Uh, it was, it has been pilloried and degraded and derided o- over the years, and it has been reduced to either self-interest or just caution. And I wanted to go back and 
capture it more fully in its in its spiritual and philosophical dimensions and bring out the practical stories and examples of Wilberforce and Lincoln who I think embodied in in a fuller way not simply self-interest or caution but pursuing the moral good in politics so I'm wondering then we're touching on different points in American history and and in the broader history of the West can we speak to prudence uh, at the American founding? Uh, maybe its its impact on the Federalist Papers, its impact on on the founders, uh, the framers, and and how they approached what they thought they were building. Well, I think imp- prudence was very important to them. Um, they had the philosophical background, um, and so the leading founders uh, and those who wrote about the founding and wrote about what kind of government, you know, whether to break from England. Uh, and in the wake of breaking from England and estab- declaring independence, what kind of government to establish? Um, they were guided by, uh, as um, Michael Novak points out in his great book on two wings, uh, they were guided by the Jewish scriptures and they were guided by uh, prudence, uh, the classical understanding of prudence. They were guided by both. And um, so they were deeply concerned about arranging a governmental structure that would prevent tyranny and, and preserve uh, freedom. Um, and, um, and the Federalist Papers is, in a sense, a culmination of a, an prudential argument for the draft of the Constitution. You know, frankly, it was a, it was a, a, a compilation of essays designed to sell the Constitution, uh, to the people and to the uh, legislatures that were voting, or the conventions, state conventions. At its foundation, it was a prudential argument. This establishes good government. We need to do this to uh, promote uh, freedom and liberty for our people. Often when it comes to the American founding and the American experiment broadly since our founding, there's a sort of a criticism, there's a kind of an angst I think you see in our present politics where the there's sort of an assumption that we can achieve, we can instantiate almost almost a utopia, right? If we just get the policies right, uh, folks seem to think that politics, that the, the public square in that regard in government is the means to achieve the good, the good life, happiness, however you want to define that. And that's, I mean, I think that's a problem, right? That's one of the things that when, the, when you look at the founding generation, they're often criticized for the failings of that generation that led to things like the Civil War or that led to longer-term problems in our country. Um, but I think you look at that from another perspective and you say what they were able to set up, deploying that virtue of prudence, among others, was a system of relative stability and great resiliency that allows us to continue to engage these debates, some of, the, some of these being perennial debates, what do human rights look like? What is the scope of, of, of a human right? Um, and how are we going to, to define them in practice? So there, there's a lot of good that comes out of that. And I guess I wonder, you know, if you can speak to that, uh, you know, that, that angst in our present politics. At the foundation of prudence is understanding reality and understanding it deeply. And the founders understood reality in the sense that at the foundation of politics is our human beings and human nature and that we live in a fallen world and we can't achieve utopia in this world. Uh, We are all uh, fallen human beings 
And we have to establish a government that takes account of that and takes account of a government that could become a tyranny if we don't have the separation of powers and checks and balances on government. So you have, you in order to prevent tyranny and preserve liberty in a government that's going to be populated with fallen human beings, you uh, divide powers into the executive, judicial, and the legislative, and uh, that helps to preserve liberty and prevent tyranny. So when today you hear of talk of establishing a, a utopia, that's where the founders uh, have uh, continued lessons for us today to understand we can't achieve that in this world through government. And that's where you get that idea, right, that uh, you know the, the government that can do anything for you can also necessarily do anything to you. Uh, and so that the risk of, of looking to a broad single solution for these issues, when, as you were pointing out, you need to engage first the human heart, as we've talked about previously, engage the conscience to get to these questions of virtue, these first principles in our society. I'm wondering, and, and, and we can't expect government to achieve utopia for us or, or produce happiness for us. So looking at this stuff today, then, I guess there's a debate that's been going on for a while now between uh, David French uh, and Sora Bamari, where in this debate, Amari is saying that there's a need to, quote, fight the culture war with the aim of defeating the enemy and enjoying the spoils in the form of a public square that is reordered to the common good and ultimately the highest good, unquote. So that's a particular excerpt from this debate. Obviously, that's, that's one of the kind of flashpoint excerpts that we picked there. But this debate is essentially about um, the differing perspectives as our politics is roiled by how to engage so many of these issues. I haven't followed it in as much detail as I would like, uh, and I haven't read um, all the writings by both of them. Um, but I do think it captures kind of two sides of the coin, this skepticism of how much government can accomplish and a desire for thinking that we need limited government and the desire that perhaps government do more. And, you know, is it possible that... Uh, laws can make us moral or that government can. And uh, the, I think that's a, it's, it's an ongoing debate that'll never be uh, completely answered or solved, I don't think. Uh, and, but it's a, I think it's also a healthy debate. So it sounds like you'd fall on the line of, of classical liberalism um, with, a, with a sense of restraint, with a sense of prudence, and looking at that as saying, this is a good that we have, it's a concrete good, in the present, and it's worth defending for that reason. Is that fair? Uh, yes, and that we shouldn't expect government to accomplish too much. We shouldn't expect government to s save our souls. We shouldn't expect government to uh, provide happiness from cradle to grave. Um, but it also raises, uh, if we can ad address it, uh, the distinction between prudence and a prudential approach to politics and the uh, phrase that's been used over the last 20 or 30 years about incrementalism. Um, I, uh, I don't have an ideology of incrementalism. I don't have a religion of incrementalism. I think prudence, one of the reasons I wrote Politics for the Greatest Good is to distinguish prudence from this so-called ideology of incrementalism, um, meaning that uh, incrementalism is mostly an, an epitaph used against those who take a prudential approach, I think, to politics. And uh, that is the, it's, it's usually a negative suggestion that you're always going slow, you're always going gradual, you're always kind of rigidly following 
baby steps and you're never striving for the moral good. And that's wrong. Um, the fact is that I think a prudential approach means that you take the largest steps possible toward the moral good in light of the obstacles in your path. And um, you're always fighting to defeat the obstacles, circumvent the obstacles, and achieve the moral good. But you recognize in the real fallen world that there will be obstacles and that you have to effectively confront them or you're not going to win. Yeah, and so as we've had this great conversation, we're talking about so many things, uh, present, past, and, and perennial. And I think your, your book is so important and so useful precisely for that reason, especially for um, younger folks who are maybe just getting into politics, the sort of kids who move to D.C. without a plan beyond that they want to they make an impact. Um, and I think whether you're, you're one of those listening or whether you're uh, somebody anywhere in America looking to make some impact in the public square, you, you couldn't go wrong picking up Clark Forsyth's book, Politics for the Greatest Good, because it provides a foundation for thinking about these issues and recognizing that there is a, a broader base and much greater depth to them than I think our present politics speaks to. So with that said, Clark, we've got to do our weekly shot of gratitude. What is something you're grateful for, Clark? Frankly, uh, I'm grateful for you and all of my colleagues at AUL. I enjoy working with you and all of our colleagues. Uh, you know, they are committed, very bright, uh, very hardworking, and united in achieving the comprehensive legal protection for human life from conception and natural death. And uh, there are the day-to-day -day frustrations, but there's the joy of working together in this work. I'll tag team on that in the sense that I think there's a lot to be grateful for in the unity and the fundamental harmony uh, amongst life-affirming Americans of different groups, of different backgrounds, of different geographies. This is something that isn't spoken to enough, I think, in these debates, is that there are many different approaches to the issue of the human right to life, but there's also a great deal of agreement and, and a fundamental friendliness uh, amongst Americans who recognize what their object is and, and what the ultimate goal is. Clark, thanks so much for being here today. This has been a great conversation. Thanks, Tom. But if there's one thing that can bring all the factions together in America, it's a call to the virtue of prudence. I'm Tom Shakely with Americans United for Life. Until next week, thanks for listening.